Hello and welcome back to the Big Esports Podcast. This is episode number 53 with Will from Roundhill Investments. I know that a lot of our listeners here don't have uh, experience or exposure to the public capital market, so we spent a lot of time in this podcast talking about exactly what that means, why our company might go private versus public and the advantages and disadvantages, the extra work and extra reward that comes with doing so. We also chat a bit about the investment market, about revenue multipliers. So for anyone who is looking at gaining their own investment, looking into the investment market or investing themselves, this is very likely the perfect podcast for you. Enjoy. Thanks so much for being a listener of this podcast. We've created it really to help increase information sharing and understanding of the esports market. If you'd like to help us out, feel free to leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you do and make sure to share this with your friends. Hopefully we've been able to provide some fantastic information to you and a bit of a learning experience over this period of time, whether you're looking to skill up, enter the industry, or you're just looking to monitor to see how things are going. If you'd like to put yourself forward as a guest, suggest any others or ask any questions feel free to connect with us at bigesports.gg or on any of the social media platforms at bigesports underscore gg. Will, thank you so much for joining me today, mate. I know that the time zones aren't always the best when you're going from your country to mine. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no problem, mate. So let's get straight into it. We've had a, a lot of discussion off microphone, so I thought it was about time we hit the record button and um, yeah, started talking about this for the listening public. Can you start it off as we always do? Give me a bit of information about yourself, where you came from in business and where you are today. Sure. So probably I would venture a little bit different uh, background than, than most of your guests on the show. I'm not, I'm not a 20-year gaming veteran by any means. Um, my background after graduating, uh, Vanderbilt university, uh, in 2011, I worked my, all of my backgrounds in the financial services industry prior to what I'm doing now. So started off working, uh, in the energy market, launched two funds. Uh, we raised about $450 million in those funds in a structure called exchange traded fund ETF. I'll come back to that in a second. Um, thereafter I spent time on the actively managed side within financial services. So I was part of a team that uh, traded an energy hedge fund. I was a head trader for a long, short energy fund. I know a lot of these terms are probably foreign to you guys, but this is the world I come from. Uh, Energy kind of had a rough go for the past few years. Um, Kind of got together with my co-founder, Tim, and said, hey, what do we want to do? And had the idea of founding Roundhill Investments, which is the firm Uh, we're talking about today and really with the goal of bringing financial products to the market that younger people are passionate about, that they believe in, that they believe in the underlying industries and companies and brands. And really that's what we've done uh, with our first product, which is an esports focused ETF. I've always been, um, you know, I would say a casual gamer myself growing up on AOE2, Halo, Mm -hmm. COD. So that's kind of a little bit on me. Yeah, so I guess the the first question is, you know, we talked a bit off microphone about the three typecasts of a lot of people listening to this podcast. You know, one are kind of mid to senior level and executives outside of esports that watch just for information. You know, they would probably understand a lot of the terms you were talking about. But even for myself working in the esports industry, you know, honestly, up until about six months ago, I'd had no idea about pretty much any of the words that you just said before. So I'd, I'd love to... I'd love to learn from you a little bit more in regards to why any esports company would remain private or go public. What is the what is the basic process of going public? And maybe we can um yeah put your university education a bit of a test and and pass it on to some of the listeners. Sure, I think when you look at esports as an industry um, and te- and and companies' decisions whether to say private or go public is, is really no different than, than any other industry that you, you might be looking at. Really, it's the first yeah. thing is a determination of where you are in your life cycle. Um, things have definitely changed over the past, call it decade, with low interest rates in the market. But historically, companies, when they were going public, you'd want to see profitability or close to profitability. Now, we're seeing that change with companies like Uber come public, um, you know, we work potentially trying to go public. That's changing in terms of companies that are deciding to list their shares. But typically, uh, in the U.S. at least, it's it's a question of where you are in your life cycle. And the the rationale for 
most companies in terms of going ahead and listing their shares on an exchange is that of getting one liquidity for current holders, the ability for current holders to have the opportunity to then sell their shares. And two, which is probably more relevant here is the ability to raise additional capital to fund, whether it's growth or whatever, whatever other plans companies have. Now, um, in the case of esports, we've seen um, companies come public, you know, at various stages. But I think typically it's it's mm. just a question of where you are in your life cycle. Mm. And we talked a little bit, uh, you know, one of your newest employees, Herb May, about this on a LinkedIn live stream. And I'd love to get you to expand on this a bit more. As far as working with a publicly listed company goes, there's, you know, the upside of, of certain things. And there's also some of the concerns you need to take into regards to um, laws and, and regulations. And there are certain things you can and can't say. Can you give a bit of an elevator pitch or a rundown about how that works? Sure. So I can't speak from a publicly listed company, but I can speak from our position, which is we have a publicly listed exchange traded fund which trades on the new york stock exchange ticker symbol is nerd which hopefully people get a kick out of um and from that from that standpoint we're very much so regulated so um whenever we're making communications with regards to marketing the fund and the same would be the case if you were you know investor relations or wherever else at a publicly traded company in general you really need to make sure that the things that you say are factual, that you're not making any promises, that you're really kind of stating the facts and letting your story tell itself. Um, but at the, at the end of the day, it's really, um, it's really a concept of just, just taking the, the, uh, I don't know if I want to redo that one. Shit. I don't know if I have a good answer for you on that, man. <laughs> That's all right. I guess the, the question, um, the question around it is like, what are the types of things that you can't say? Like, are there and where can maybe someone go to? Even if you can't say what you can't say, is there somewhere that people can go to read more about that? Um, yeah, I think ultimately what you what you want to stay away from, like I said, is those promissory statements. Don't, for example, mm. we see a lot of this in esports. You can't say it's going to grow to be a ten billion dollar industry in five years. You can't you can't mm. say that. Um, you, you kind of need to stay within within the facts. You need to you need to quote your sources, and I think it's actually kind of really important with all of the um, data that we see in the world of esports, and so much of it is kind of pie in the sky numbers, which I think are definitely achievable. But just because you think something doesn't mean that you can say it when you're in a public forum. And I think when you're dealing with publicly traded entities, whether it's a fund like ours or an individual company, ultimately the scrutiny is that much greater. Um, you know, we have the SEC and FINRA that we deal with as the regulatory agencies in the States. There's similar regulatory mm. agencies, whether you're in the EU or Australia or Asia, um, and ultimately you need, need to play by their rules. Uh, and that's that's what it comes down to. Yeah, and I guess one of the most uh, obvious and high-profile examples of this, right, is, is Elon Musk with the you know <laughs> SEC filing against him, right, where you know he made a statement that he was thinking about taking the the company private at a certain price when that simply wasn't the case. Yeah, I mean that's it, it, in a lot of ways it's kind of um, a lot of people in in our industry and in financial services are are somewhat surprised that the regulators haven't come down on him more harshly and more quickly because. What he did was really unprecedented in a, in a, in a negative way. Um, mm. And, you know, something like that, that's actually a great example because something like that really actually impacted the share price of Tesla stock um, when, he, when he tweeted it. And tons of people lost fortunes or made fortunes on the basis of something that was factually incorrect. Uh, mm. And once you get, once you get to, to a point where something like that's happening, now you have, I mean, who, who, who's on the hook for investors that wrongfully lost out because they were short Tesla stock when it jumped? I forget what it did that day, 15, 20%, something like that. Um, mm -hmm. That's where you really get into problems when you're looking at things like market manipulation. Um, and that's really where the, where the SEC at the end of the day is, is, is taking a look at. And one actually other point I would make, and this is, really important for people when they start to get involved with public companies is the concept of inside information, material, non-public information. Um, mm. If you're working at a startup esports company, 
um, you know, you're, you're, you know, the people there probably don't want you sharing the intimate secrets and financials and everything else without clearing it. But at the end of the day, it's probably not illegal. Um, if you have information and you're at a publicly traded games company that a new, that GTA six is coming out in October, that is something that no one should be sharing and no one should know outside of those, those doors of the company. And that's a really big difference. Mm. Yeah, it's it's interesting some of the stuff you were saying before about the listing and, you know, people making a lot of money or, or breaking depending on information that's not factually true. And I guess that's a lot of the concerns around the blockchain market, right, with so many pump and dump um, telegram groups that were around and, you know, companies raising exorbitant amounts of, of money through, you know, initial coin offerings for products that don't really work. And it's another interesting thought for me, I guess, around, you know, a lot of fake it till you make it, which just simply isn't possible when you're a public listed company because it, it's highly illegal. Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, fake it till you make it at the end of the day doesn't really work so much in public markets because you're reporting your, you know, depending on what, what part of the world you're in, you're reporting your results on a quarterly or semi-annual basis. I mean, there's no hiding from mm. the numbers at the end of the day. And I think for, you know, touching back on an earlier point, why our company is waiting to go, go public is because your numbers come under that much more scrutiny when there's, when, when they're, they're in the public eye every single quarter. Um, but I, I guess we'll see as more, as more esports related companies come public. For sure. And look, for anyone listening, I would highly suggest you go and look up some public illicit esports companies because their books are essentially open. You can look at, um, you know, Razor, the peripheral company, they're public illicit. You can go look at their at their um, earnings results. You can look at uh, Gfinity over in the UK. You can yep. look at esports, Mogul and Emerge in Australia, et cetera, et cetera. And it's a, good, it's a good thinking exercise because if you're looking to create a startup yourself and you're looking to compete against these people, you're not exactly sure how much capital you need or you'd like to learn about how much they spend on staff per quarter or director's fees or marketing, you can see all of that. Like, obviously, you can't see everything down to how many pens they've purchased in the last month or, you know, whether their marketing dollars were spent only on Facebook or how much exactly was spent on Instagram, but you can get a general indication and it's some great um, competitor analysis you can do and some industry analysis. And I do that very often, you know, every at least every six months, I will open up the earnings report of all these companies and just have a bit of a look through just so I can understand what's happening. No, I think that's a tremendous advice. And I think, you know, it's very important, though, to note that not all companies in this ecosystem are created equally, right? If you're starting a hardware-related brand, yeah, then take a look at Razor. But if you're focusing on live events, then look at what Modern Times Group is doing. Um, and mm. I think it's really important um, to when you're doing that and trying to look at how much are how much are they spending on you know overhead at the at the company level? How much are they spending on marketing costs to really find a company that you know, maybe it's a lot bigger than what you are currently are, but are striving to be, but it has the same business type and business model. Um, because I think it's really important that there's so many different types of companies that are touching this space and in the ecosystem, whether it's a streaming platform or a live events company or a game publisher, mm -hmm. um, to find the one that, that really matches for, for what you're looking to do. Yeah. It's, it's free. It's free insider analysis. It, it seriously no, is. Totally. When you're, yeah. Totally. And read, and read the reports too. Not the numbers. A lot of people aren't numbers people and looking at a, you know, just the, just the balance sheet and income statement only tells you so much mm. in a lot of these reports, you know, you'll have in the U S called MDNA management discussion and analysis, and they'll tell you what's working and what isn't. And you really kind of get a, a, a good view. And then one further step I would take it is if you have the ability to, and you know, you have, you have the time, you know, find a company that's relatable, that's similar to your business and listen to the earnings call, see what they have to say, see, how they answer certain questions that come from analysts where maybe things aren't going so well or things are going great. Mm. So my, my question leading on from that then is what's the, what's the trade-off for you? Like obviously there are some downsides in the fact there's, there's things you can't say competitors can watch, but also one of the major downsides to me seems almost death by administration. You're having to produce these massive reports to be released to the public. You're, happy, you're having to hold these shareholder meetings, these earning calls, et cetera. What are the major upsides for listing that offset all of this death by administration you have to go through? No, that's a great point. And I think for a lot of really small startup type companies, which are, you know, listing in places like Canada, Australia, as we discussed, 
Um, now, under the Reg A rules, you can list in the U.S. pretty early on. For them, a big portion of it, like you said, is not just the time and effort that goes into those things, but the legal bills and the cost. So mm. then it brings up your question is why are, why are companies going ahead and, and taking that expense on? And I think the biggest reason ultimately at the end of the day is it, it widens up your investor base. I mean, the power of having anyone who has access to the exchange you trade on, the ability to buy and sell your shares in your company Mm-hmm. really improves it improves a number of things one you you have access to all this additional capital including including you know hedge funds high net worth individuals everything else who can now buy and sell, sell the stock and then from a from an operational standpoint it becomes a lot more attractive when you're going out and hiring people um to have the ability to have stock-based comp in something that's super liquid um, if, you know, if, if anyone's listening has been involved and, and gotten part of their compensation and equity in a private business, well, it's only great in terms of how well you can go, turn around and sell it when the time comes. So there's definitely pros. There's definitely pros to being, being public. Mm, for sure. Yeah. So it's an interesting thing to weigh up and, you know, once again, to, to phrase why for the listening audience, it's a quite a new thing that's happening in the esports industry. So I'm glad to have someone like you on to explain, I guess, from firsthand, you know, what are the things you should consider and yeah, what are the ups and downs with publicly listing? And I guess that coming into the next um, thing for you, you know, I wanted to discuss a little bit about your thoughts on the esports market as a whole um, with your lens as, you know, an investment vehicle and and your history in finance. And the first thing to discuss is the Team Liquid Dota 2 news. So I posted this on my LinkedIn and Twitter and it's been all over the place where, you know, Team Liquid's Dota 2 team came second this year at the International, um, won a few million dollars. Um, they're the highest they're one of the highest earning Dota teams of all time, an absolute iconic organization. And they announced that after the last international, they seem to feel that they've actually outgrown their company and the players have left to create their own organization. And asking you, Will, I guess from an investment hat on, does that add a lot of extra concern to the investing public and and some extra risk that comes with it that the players can just become bigger than their employer, leave and make their own company? I mean, on the, on the surface, it has to, right? I mean, can you imagine... Imagine if that was the case in Major League Baseball or the NFL or the NBA, where the players could just—I mean, actually, the NBA is not not such a good example because you see the you know LeBron calling up his buddies and forming super teams overnight. So they're kind, they kind of mm. have more power in the NBA than than other leagues. But I, I think on the surface it would, but when you look at it a little bit closer, I mean, Dota 2's competitive environment has been structured this way in a lot of ways from the beginning, right? You have typically one-year contracts for the players um, and you have, you know, a captain involved that's going to go out and select his team. Um, and really it's, it's, um, it's the players that have the power in Dota more so than other traditional esports. I think the players have a ton of power in battle rails, um, which, mm. which is for, for, for other reasons. But I think investors, you know, if you're, if you're looking to invest in, in orgs that have, you know, Dota teams, I think there's some concern there, but I think it's pretty isolated to that title in terms of the way that it's it's structured. And I think taking that a step further, part of it is the prize pool distribution you have in Dota, right? Everything is TI. That's it. Mm. I mean, there's yeah, there's some majors throughout the year that are significant, but because it's so skewed to one tournament and because the prize pool is so massive, players really need to need to believe that their team can win in order for it to make a ton of sense. And I think because that's the case, you don't find players wanting to sign multi-year contracts with their same, with their same roster teammates, because what happens if one guy, you know, declines over the next couple of years? Mm. Um, that said, I think it, it brings up an interesting counterpoint, which is, is there opportunity to kind of change that landscape and you know if you if you're paying salaries of you know a few hundred thousand a year can you lock guys down for can you lock a team of five down for a few years and, and build the new york yankees in dota i don't know 
Yeah, and I, part of part of my solution, I think, for this is providing equity to the players. Right? It it's worked well for Astralis in the past, the CS:GO mm. squad. It works well for a lot of um, influencer companies as well. You know, we founded Shade Crew here in Australia that operated for four or so months, and we did the same thing. Some of our founding members got um, instant equity um, if they were doing a lot of work to help. You know, the launch of the product and every other of the founding. Um, team or the influencers that were involved from the start at least had some KPIs and a path to gain equity in the company. And that means that they are more likely to stay around because they're fully invested in the growth. And, you know, maybe the common question is what happens if they leave and join another team? Well, there should be a clause in there that they're forced to, to sell out if they're going to a competitor, whether it's at a discount or full price or not. But at least they've got some equity and some other ownership in the company. Because when you're, when you're team OG, and you win $3 million in one tournament, $120,000 salary suddenly doesn't become much worth it, right? Especially when you're promoting the your employers' um, brands and companies and you're spending time doing that when you could maybe be getting them yourself. So it would make sense to me that Team Liquid could leave, pull some of their money together. They've got enough. They don't need to pay themselves salaries. They can hire a manager to book their flights and to fly them around. And they've got almost zero... Uh, expenses of operation, right? They've got computers, sure, they can get those sponsored, but Valve flies them to flights and accommodation to the tournaments they play in. So what do they really have to pay for? No, I mean, it's it's, it's a pretty interesting development. I, I think, um, hmm. you know, as, as infrastructure continues to develop, I think that will probably become less of an option uh, depending on the given esport. But there's, I think there's a reason that we don't see that happen we don't see that happen in traditional sports, right? Um, and locked in, locked in, right? Franchising, um, you know, trade periods, et cetera. You simply can't do these things. Exactly right. Exactly right. Mm, mm. And you've, you've probably noticed by the tone of my voice and, and this topic is this topic. I love it. <laughs> I love this problem, actually. <laughs> and, and I think there's some fantastic innovative solutions. And that's, that's the best part of esports to me, right? There's new things that come up that you don't foresee should be a problem and someone can help to solve them. I think that's awesome. No. And, and I, I caught myself making an, uh, an, another analogy to traditional sports, which is commonly done um, throughout the space. And I think it, it, it works to a degree, but, and I don't mean to get us off topic here, but it works to a degree, but there's just so much inherently that's different in terms of esports versus traditional sports that, I want to try and move away from those analogies. I think that those analogies were in place for a lot of reasons. Most of them because they were needed to present things in a way that they were familiar enough to the big investors getting involved in the space. But I think, mm, mm. I, you know, I don't need to get off track, but. No, that's fine. Yeah. And look, we talked about this a bit off recording too, right? About the the business models of three different teams um, who have, you know, they're, they're all interesting to us, but for different reasons, you know, 100 Thieves with their merchandise and, you know, some definite competitive prowess bays with their very influencer focus and um, I wouldn't say minimal competitive prowess, but that's not their main focus. Or Team Liquid with their internal liquid media agency, which is very focused on competitive nature. Yeah, and I think I think what all three of those orgs are doing is really smart and, and, and savvy from a business standpoint, because at the end of the day, we're just, we're just not quite there yet in terms of the economics for being just a team built to win. We're not there yet. And I think we might eventually get there where you just, you just try and put the, you know, put the best players into whatever esport it is and try and compete and, and, and first place matters a lot beyond just mm. TI. Um, we're not there yet. I think that from an investor standpoint, that's something that I would really like to see more orgs kind of embrace. And I think they are, if you, if you've had a, if you've had any, you know, investor decks come across your way, you'll always see that social media following, for example, is always mentioned, um, which, which is smart. I mean, yeah. I, I don't, you know, watching Nade shot on, uh, you know, with, with his announcement of, of not being in the call of duty league for hundred thieves. He said it outright. He said, look, we are a content and media company. That's really what these companies are, first and foremost. And I think the more mm. that orgs can embrace that, and I'm sure the hardcore esports fans don't, don't want to hear that, but at the end of the day, it's a business. 
I think that the more they can diversify away from the game being played on the screen, the better they'll do in terms of raising additional capital until we get to the point where winning the game on the screen is enough to, to really make a business out of it. We're just not quite there. Yeah, look, I agree 100%. And I've had so many videos posted on LinkedIn and so many times in podcasts, whether dedicated or just me bringing it up, that exactly what you were saying is that Nadeshot saying we are a content and media company and even wider, me pushing so many more esports organizations to think about yourself as an agency and less as a traditional team because it opens up so many more lines of revenue. And I guess that brings it into the next discussion topic we had lined up for today as well, which is... um, which is, you know, creating multiple um, creating multiple lines of revenue for a team and de-risking the investment. Do, are you seeing enough um, esports organizations where the teams are, are otherwise doing so uh, or are they a little bit too laser-focused on one area right now, which is causing them to become undone? Yeah, so because we're primarily focused on publicly traded esports and digital entertainment companies, really there, I mean, there's probably a handful of teams that are public globally, apart from those that are owned by larger organizations. I can think of a few off the top mm. of my head. You know, Enthusiast Gaming merged with Luminosity. That's kind of mm-hmm. a team, but there's other stuff going on. Simplicity is a tiny org out of the US. They're public. Um, I think that that's actually only the two that kind of come to mind. In both cases, even though it's on a very small scale right now, in both cases, Luminosity through their merger uh, Simplicity is 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 rolling out esports gaming centers, land centers throughout the states. Both of them are are doing it in a way that it's not just the team that you're buying into. You're buying into uh, some, uh, you know a, a, a company that owns the team, but also owns other assets. And I think on the public market, which is where I can speak to, that's something that investors mm-hmm. really want to see. They want to see. Um, at the end of the day, they're, they're risk averse and they, they don't want to have so much equity tied up in the concept of how a team performs. I think you've seen this in traditional sports, uh, not so much because of, of where they are in their life cycle. And, and you know, the Atlanta Braves are, are publicly traded. Uh, Arsenal, Man U are publicly traded. And, mm. and we know what we're getting there. We know that business model is fully fleshed out. We're just so early in terms of esports, that we don't know exactly how the teams are going to best monetize, um, mm. whether it's merchandise or you know advertisements or sponsorships. We just we we don't know yet. So I think that investors want to see that you know there there are other ways besides winning that they have some semblance of certainty that revenues will be generated. So keeping the discussion still around teams, um, if you look at the Forbes um, Most Valuable Esports Companies article, which is, um, to to prephrase, it's not uh, focused on any companies except for teams, um, that claims that most of these organizations around the world are valued anywhere up to $310 million, which is Cloud9. And most of these organizations are operating anywhere from a seven to 13 times revenue up to 20 times in relation to Immortals, which was a claimed 5 million revenue of a $100 million valuation. Those uh, valuations from what I've seen personally talking to investors and those revenue multiples have been pushed back now for investors. They're no longer interested in doing a 10 to 20x. And I've even had major pushback from investors not being interested in a 5 to 7x saying to me that... Um, you know, it's not them choosing between one esports company at 10x and one at seven, but they're choosing between one esports company at 7x and an oil mining and gas company at 2x. So I'd love to get your thoughts about this from the private investing public, if you have any, you know, knowledge and contacts in that space. And, and what do you think about these revenue multiples? Is it because the industry might be slowing a bit? Are people becoming more realistic? Or is it something that I haven't thought about yet? Yeah, so we actually ran that that exact same analysis and came to, came to similar numbers. And and just so the audience is clear, these are multiples on revenue, right? Sales, top line numbers, not, mm-hmm. not multiples on, on profits, right? Because very few, if any of the orgs, at least as of last year, actually generated a profit. Now, that's not to say they yeah. hypothetically couldn't have because they're growing so rapidly. They wanted to cut down expenses. Maybe they could. Um, but when you look at, let's call it, you know, 15 times is probably the, the middle of the range for, for esports orgs as of last year's Forbes valuation. That is 
on, on, on the higher end, even when you're talking about high growth, publicly traded technology companies to provide a little bit of context. When you compare it to traditional sports, they come in, call it six to eight times. I think I looked at it and the, the Chicago Bulls were 10 times and TSM was also 10 times. And I thought that was kind of interesting because it was, mm. what would you rather own? I posed that question on Twitter a while back and I think most people said TSM. Um, but mm. but anyway, that was, that was just a little side note. So that the, the question is, you know, what, what's the, what's the proper valuation? I think quite frankly, people really, really don't know. I would say that the fact that teams are now potentially struggling to raise even towards the lower end of that, maybe in the, in the traditional team range, six to eight times, I think people are starting to question how many, how many top tier for lack of a better word, esports organizations will there be? How many can, how many can the space handle? Right. I mean, we kind of maybe assume that it will look something like, um, you know, traditional sports, once again, uh, where, where typical leagues have, you know, call it 20, 30 teams in them. Mm. I don't know if, um, if, if anyone's really comfortable enough to know that there will be 30 dominant esports organizations just quite yet. And maybe that's why we're seeing some pushback on, on for some, some smaller names, but I think bigger picture, uh, these, these companies, yeah, they're, they're being valued on a multiple of revenues. Yes, that is true, but really they're not, their their rounds aren't being raised on the basis, as far as I know, on the basis of any real multiples, it's, it's kind of on, on, on the dream of what it could be, right? It's not, you're not mm. buying it because, oh, it's a great deal at 12 times sales right now. It's less than the other guys at 20. Uh, mm. you're buying it because you believe into the the vision for the management team and what the brand could become outside of gaming and merchandise and everything else. Um, mm. so I think, I think that that's kind of the, the way that we would look at, at, at the team valuations. Yeah. And I think that's a reasonable, yeah, I think that's, that's reasonable for sure. And looking at the opportunity cost of what's available, but in the end, you know, you can boil it down to that metric of revenue multiples, but it's not necessarily something that they're focusing on. And, I guess that comes back to a question that was asked to me on LinkedIn uh, recently and had a bit of a private discussion uh, with a member of the esports public that was saying to me, you know, what, Chris, what do you say to investors and to potential sponsor brands that throw away esports and say it's childish and they don't think it should happen? And my easy answer is stop pushing it uphill, tell them good day and go find someone else. (laughs) The same thing happens with investors, right? Like, you know, like you were saying before, a lot of investors in public markets, they don't like risk. And they want something to be super simple and easy to understand. So, you know, sometimes if if you're going to pitch to an investor and they only like to pitch in um, companies that are currently making profits and they only like to pitch in companies that aren't pre-revenue and they're a certain valuation, if you go to them not ticking their boxes, you probably shouldn't be in that room in the first place. Yeah, and I think one thing I I, I should have mentioned before um, is where we are from a monetization standpoint and I know there's, you know, everyone questions, you know, some of the industry level data in terms of how many esports viewers and fans there are. But depending on which mm. which numbers you like to look at, esports as a whole, and I know that's really broad because we're going across titles and we're going across teams, monetizes its fans, its viewers at a rate of roughly two to five dollars per fan. Mm-hmm. Traditional. You know, sports like the NBA, the NHL, the NFL, the MLB. I use, I know you're an Aussie guy, but I use the, I use the American sports league. I apologize. <laughs> um, monetize over $30 per fan. Mm. When you look at it from that lens, could you see an instance where esports can double or triple the monetization? We're so new that people are just figuring out how to do it. I think that's mm. not outside the realm of possibility to take it from two or five to 10 or 15, half that of the other sports. If that's the case, and we're making a lot of assumptions here, then esports teams are not expensive on a multiple basis. They're maybe in line or, or, or cheaper than traditional sports. But to your point, these are, these are the types of assumptions that some investors will, will, take a liking to and, and others won't won't really put any credence in. But it's not it's not far fetched to see a world where we look back and say, Wow, can you believe you could have bought 
cloud buying for three hundred ten million. Mm, exactly right, and it's always it's always hindsight, right? Like you know, go back and buy a thousand dollars of Apple shares. You know, ten years ago, for sure, I'm sure you would do it. But there's always that risk when you're in the in- investing market. And I think that some people coming from esports who are, um, you know, really believers in their industry and they're really behind what they're doing, it's hard for them to understand the risk that's involved. You know, they've been involved in esports for so long, they think that you know from the inside, look how amazing it is. Everyone's talking about it, not realizing that they are in their own bubble. And they could be talking to someone else's inside and an and oil gas mining bubble as well that doesn't understand. So sometimes you need to t- take a step back, see where they're coming from and take a little bit of extra time to explain. Yeah. And I think, I think maybe changing topic a, sl- a slight bit here, but I think um, on that, on that side of things, a lot of esports types of companies that we come across on, on the private side, not that that's what we're involved in, but from what I've seen, it's, you know, you need to have a business model that in some way can be from an investment standpoint and raising capital standpoint that can somehow be something that investors can relate to something that they do understand. Um, mm. And I think that, you know, for example, I, I look at the public companies because because that's what, what we focus on. Look at a company like Huya, right? Streaming platform mm. out of China, really similar to, to Twitch. To me, that's something that investors can understand. It's it's basically a platform to watch games, and I can easily figure out how you make money off of that, right? You run ads, donations. Mm. Donations is a harder part. You can't really explain that to the older guys who are like, what's going on? I mean, that, that's a tougher one to explain, but you need to have a, a, a it's going to be, you don't need to. It's going to be a lot easier if you have a business model that's that's clearer than something that is based on, you know, something that hasn't been proven out yet, or at least proven out in, in, in something that's, that's not the same, but, but, but you can kind of see how it's similar. And I think for a lot of it, for me, a lot of my skepticism personally relates to how much, is, how much credence is being put into the live events side of the space. Um, I, I think that you know, we've seen a ton of growth there, but I also think that so much of, of esports has the potential with where technology is going to be fully consumed digitally, that there might be a little bit of, uh, of a, you know, kind of oversaturation of companies trying to take on uh, that side of the market. Yeah, and that leads perfectly into the next thing that I wanted to discuss, which is the massive trend right now of esports facilities and live engagement platforms. You know, I've had some content on my LinkedIn uh, that I've been posting recently that's developed a lot of discussion around a school in Tokyo, around a esports hotel in Osaka, <laughs> around Team Solo Mid announcing a $13 million facility. And I did a, a quite a long discussion on LinkedIn Live yesterday, probably 20, 25 minutes of me ranting about, about this and looking at the different models of live facilities that are around. You've got things like Gigi Easy Bar here in Melbourne, Victoria, which is a sports bar that you can watch esports at, not participate in, but watch. You've got these team facilities like Complexity, Team Solo Mid, um, the Drop Bears and Diables here in Australia, um, Excel over in the UK, et cetera, et cetera. You've got um, kind of internet cafe bars like Checkpoint Esports here in Australia, which has 21 PCs, but also an alcohol serving bar. And then you've got these mega facilities like Fortress Esports that got announced here in Australia. Massive three-story, I believe it's three-story facility, multi-million dollar fit out. Um, you've got Allied Esports. You've got the HyperX Arena in Las Vegas and such. So I can guarantee 100% that it is a trend because there's so many opening, but I'd love to get your thoughts, especially from the lens of an investor, um, yeah, into how profitable you think these companies could be uh, and into, you know, how enticing it is. They're obviously gaining tens of millions of dollars in investment, which is not commonplace yet in esports unless you're a large team. So they've got some investor interest behind them. But do you think it's, um, yeah, based on, on some sound logic or do you think it's on the – or do you think it's on the hype and interesting part of esports? I think – and and I think it, it's bigger than the concept of live events, what I'm about to say. But I think that it speaks to how much hype there is around the space that we need to have an esports version of everything, right? Like mm. we have, you know, uh, you know, I, I use G Fuel as an example because it's a great company and they're doing really well. But like 
do we really need a gaming esports like drink? Um, mm. I, I don't. I, I just. I, I think that there's so much of a desire to to tie all of these um, things that could be multi-purpose, whether it's like a bar or like a hotel or like a venue, um, and try and tie them to esports for the sole reason. And a lot of these people that are involved in in, in these, and I'm generalizing completely are getting on the hype train, right? They know that it's hot and they know that they can raise the money if they call it an esports something and, and not, aren't necessarily coming from that background or, or that doesn't mean that a lot of them won't work. But I think at the end mm. of the day, people, if you're, if you're a savvy investor, you look at it and say, oh, you're, you're opening an esports bar. Well, like you're opening a bar, right? Like you're, mm. you're, you're branding it and positioning it in a way that it could, could grow. But the business model, it could be like, it could be as good as the best bar ever, but at the end of the day, that's still what it is. Um, and I think that's something that, that is just natural for any you know, nascent fast growing industry to see happen, particularly one that inter intertwines with, with media and entertainment. Um, but that's not to say that there won't be winners in that space. Um, but I think it's very telling. You mentioned allied esports. uh, allied is now that they merged with world poker tour they do have the venue in las vegas which is a flagship and i do think that there's room for dedicated flagships uh to a certain degree but they're trying to replicate mm. what was done for poker and making it a, a spectator sport and do and they're they're doing things well beyond uh the physical arena and the truck that they have once again coming back to this point of diversifying revenue streams they're not just making a bet on being physical um, esports and gaming space. And I, I think then you look at, you know, Simon property group, uh, partnered with allied, they're trying to say, you know, the death of the U S mall is something that a lot of people talk about, right? Amazon took over mm -hmm. no one goes to the mall anymore. I like, and, and GameStop's doing the same thing. We're trying to repurpose. It just came out on Facebook yesterday, a clip of what the new GameStops are going to look like. I, I just don't know how much of those there need to be. I think there's room for high-end gaming centers where, you know, you're going and practicing with your team or, or, you know, teams are in town for, for an Overwatch, Overwatch match. And they're going to practice the day before at, you know, like a Helix esports here in New York, there's room for mm -hmm. certain parts of this ecosystem, but I think you're going to find a lot of these, um, dedicated, you know, branded esports, you know, event spaces are going to have a rough go. Yeah. And I think my main question for these esports dedicated sections are, are you adding something to the industry or are you fragmenting and taking things from others? Because the current market isn't large enough, I think, for people to start stealing market share from each other. Mm. So by opening this facility, are you killing all the local internet cafes that are already around and operating? Are you killing the local bars that are around by making this mega facility? And are you taking um, these trade show booths away from things like PAX, um, Comic-Con, et cetera, where there's esports showings and p moving them into your venue? So essentially, yes, you are making a company that's attracting people, but you're only doing so by taking away from others in such a small market already, which doesn't help the overall ecosystem. That's my main concern. Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned, that, you know, cafes internet cafes which you know mm. i think in a lot of ways made korea the esports giant that it is today right they've been yep they have i think you know 200 game, gaming centric cafes of the like, uh, like of, of large size we have like a handful in the states I, I think that's something that needs to be built out and i know the u.s market way better than, than elsewhere in the world that's something that there's still a ton of room and opportunity to build out in the States. And I think in, in a lot of ways, that's why I hope none of the NAUS fans get mad at me for this. That's why we're in a lot of ways so far behind other parts of the world was because we didn't have the grassroots infrastructure to really develop top talent in, in esports in, in the same way mm. that, that Korea, that Korea does or that the EU does. Yeah. Look, yeah, I definitely think there's some some truth behind that because if you look at um, 
I mean, in, in Australia and New Zealand, you know, we're often bunched together quite a lot. Mm-hmm. And in New Zealand, especially when there were live tournaments, you know, I sponsored a New Zealand Counter-Strike team and, and to help manage them as well as far back as 2012. And we flew them over to play in a tournament. This team was realistically ranked about ninth in Australia and they came a very solid third in the tournament because they always played at Internet Cafe because their internet and computers at home were terrible, but they were used to playing together in person in a facility. So when it came to playing in Internet Cafe together, they were fantastic. And as a what I call a semi-professional Counter-Strike player myself in the past, I understood the same thing, that my team were fairly new and that we gelled together well online in our home setups, but we needed more of that live experience to play because it's so different playing live. You're not used to the seat. The monitors might be a slightly different size and they're further away than you. The table might be slightly higher. There's a lot more noise. There's a lot more sensory experience around. So the New Zealanders were so used to all of that by playing Internet Cafe all the time, where the other people that were what they people affectionately called onliners who are only good online um, weren't, you know, weren't used to that. So it gives you a massive advantage if you're always playing live. No, it, it makes sense. It, it, it's going to be exciting to see that build out happen in the states. Uh, we're just mm. we're just getting started. Sure. So being a, being aware of time, we've probably only got about 10 minutes left together before you've got to head off and, and I've got another meeting to get to. So I'd love to have you spend a bit of time explaining to me more about the structure of Roundhill as an ETF and also the companies that you're involved with. Sure. So Roundhill, the firm, is considered an investment advisor in the States. And I think I mentioned this at the BNA of the call, but we founded the firm with the goal of bringing financial products to market that younger people are passionate about, that they want to succeed, that they want the underlying brands and companies to succeed. And for our first fund and what we're focused on exclusively right now, that led us to, to the world of esports. And uh, our fund is traded currently on the New York Stock Exchange. So the ticker symbol mm-hmm. is NERD, N-E-R-D. And the way that an exchange-traded fund works is when you buy one share of NERD of our ETF, which you know you can buy for as little as $15 on the exchange, one share, when you buy a share of NERD, you get exposure to, we call it a basket of 25 different companies from around the globe that are all tied and related to esports. Uh, and in terms of the type of companies that you're getting exposure to, they really fall into to, to four main categories. The first is, and, and this is an obvious one, are your, your game publishers, your game developers. Um, the way that we have it built is it's going to skew more towards companies that are leading the charge from an esports standpoint. So Activision and much less so a company like Nintendo, which we do not invest in because they're so anti-esports and, and competitive play. The game publishers are... are, are at the end of the day, I think going to be probably the biggest winners from the whole esports boom because they own the IP. You can't go out and start an Overwatch league tomorrow to compete uh, the same way you mm. could start a pickup basketball league. And I think that a lot of the revenues are really going to accrue to them. They're also treating esports like a huge marketing tool for them. And, and it'll be interesting to see how they take it from marketing tool, a cost center to a revenue and profit center. But I think that'll take place over time. Uh, beyond the games companies, we have uh, media companies. So I mentioned Huya earlier on the call, um, but we're also investing in, in companies in Korea. So Africa TV uh, is the you know the streaming predominant streaming platform there. Uh, also- that is a very very familiar Starcraft name. I haven't heard in in a few months. Yeah, nice. Yeah, and then uh, I'm not sure. A lot of people don't know this, but um, Modern Times Group is a public company. They own both ESL and DreamHack. Uh, mm. ESL just announced a big partnership with Huya to do uh, to do events in in China. Um, ESL is also going to be involved in the Olympics with with Intel. Um, so that's another kind of exciting way to play the space where you're not making a bet on a given game. And we saw what happened with the rise of Fortnite. A lot of the publicly traded game companies suffered as as they possibly should have because there was so much of a risk of Fortnite taking market share. Um, the next type of, of company that we kind of have in there is hardware, hardware plays. Companies like Razer, like Turtle Beach, like MicroStar, really kind of what you would view as from an investor standpoint as the quote unquote picks and shovels way to, to play the space. 
Uh, mm. No matter what game they're playing on or what platform they're watching on, people still need to buy their gaming PCs, their mice, their headsets. Um, and that's kind of an interesting way to play it. And then the last, last oh, another interesting actually one that just came to mind, uh, it's kind of going, it's, it's product kind of going viral a little bit right now on Twitch is uh, Kobe, which makes the eye tracking software. I don't know if you've seen any of those videos. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's like the, the people love it. Um, and esports teams use it use it as well. And then the last type of, of company we have in there is kind of these broad based larger larger sized companies. I don't mean Amazon. I don't mean Microsoft. I don't mean Google. Um, really, you look at something like Tencent would fall into that bucket. Uh, you know, I could I could go on for ten minutes in terms of all of the gaming companies Tencent owns, but there will be a few. They own forty percent of Epic, which is Fortnite. They own all of League of Legends. They own a stake in Discord, Huya, Billy Billy, Doyu. I mean, the list goes on and on. Supercell, which is doing a ton in mobile esports. Mm. Um, and really, we package all of these companies together from across the globe uh, in a way that allows for the average investor. Like I said, if you want to invest $15, you can buy one share and you get all of that packaged into one. And that's, that's in, the, in a nutshell how the, the ETF works. Fantastic. And I guess I want to throw a little bit of a curveball question at you, and and I don't expect an easy and obvious answer, but we've seen companies like ESL with with the Huya investment um, claim a $425 million valuation. Forbes last year released their article um, with claiming Cloud9 to $310 million valuation, putting your future spectacles on. How long do you think it is until we get our first unicorn billion-dollar company? in esports that is a you know direct brand and, and not a holding company like mtg uh mtg is not even a billion mtg i think after they spun off their their media operations they're 600 million i think mm. if we're talking pure pure esports which it sounds like they're going to i guess you, w- yeah. you wouldn't you wouldn't let me get a pass on on huya or doyu it sounds like mm. um although you could argue you know that's like would you consider twitch i don't know uh, I think you know. I think we're a little bit of a of a ways away from that happening. Um, if I kind of had to make a bet, I mean, are we talking esports team or are we talking any esports related company? Yeah, well, you you know, I think you picked a logical hole in it right at the start. Uh, this is whenever someone asks me a question about esports, and I go, well, yes, but no, and you know, there's no short answer to what exactly is an esports company. You know, is Blizzard Activision an esports company because they run these franchise leagues? Well, no, because they're a game developer. But let's let's just say, for example, that. Um, for this thinking scenario, we are thinking about an esports direct company. So we're thinking about a Team Liquid, a Cloud9, a FaZe Clan, even who you know has some very deep roots in esports. We're thinking about an ESL. We're thinking about an esports only streaming platform. Let's let's keep it esports focused for this question. Yeah, I think we're we're away <laughs> we're a little ways away from that. Um, I think you already had uh, some concern um, about where where things were moving and how quickly. Um, and you even mentioned it anecdotally that teams are seeing pushback on and five to seven times valuations. I, I think it, it, it might be a, a little while before, before we get to a billion dollar valuation. I think you also need to take into account um, where we are globally, especially in the U.S. in terms of an economic cycle, right? We, we've had a bull market since the, you know, global financial crisis for 10 years. That is pretty unprecedented going on 11 or 12. That's unprecedented. Mm -hmm. Like if, if we have another recession or, 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 you know, slowdown in growth, that's going to impact high growth, high valuation companies like esports companies more so than it will impact, you know, steady cash flow, uh, focused companies. So that could be a setback. I don't know. I, I, I think let's say we'll see a billion dollar company in the next four years. There's there's my guess. And I think exactly what you're saying doesn't highlight a problem. It highlights an opportunity in the fact of thinking about more than just pure esports in thinking about phase 
partnering with rappers and um, influencers, thinking about 100 Thieves with the investment from Drake and Scooter Braun and going really hard into content and clothing. You know, people are always going to want to buy clothes, especially ones that look cool. Thinking about Team Liquid opening up its own internal agency and also ESL. You know, ESL in Australia, the amount of non-esports events things they run, it's probably as frequent as or more so than the esports things. You know, when you're going to a PAX Australia and such, ESL are running a lot of those boots in the back end for companies like Plantronics and Microsoft and, you know, manning these booths and, and doing the set design and things like that for them too. So it, I think that shows to some of the people who are pigeonholing themselves in esports, you can think a little bit wider and think of it like the traditional sports market. There are so many companies outside of just the Baltimore Ravens or, you know, just an NBA team. There are player managers, there are marketing organizations, social media. There's cleaning companies that have the contracts to clean the massive venues. You could say that your cleaning company is a sports company if you're only cleaning sports venues, I'm sure, but it's not as sexy or it's not as obvious. And I think that's where a lot of the growth is in the esports market right now is these companies that mightn't be as sexy for VCs, but they are stable. They are cash flow positive, just like a team that we've been working with recently as well. They operate a lot in the tier two region and they are cash flow positive. They're turning a profit, but they're not sexy because they're not in a $30 million franchise league and they're not signing on Ninja and Dr. Disrespect to do videos for them, but they are turning a profit. You know, the the main takeaway I have from that is you mentioned the Baltimore Ravens as your example for, for a team. You've been spending too much time talking about Herb May, man. <laughs> that's you know why it's the only team that came to mind i was thinking and i was going crap i need an example <laughs> that was my example because herb told me that i uh to be friends with him i have to like them basically so i don't have a choice <laughs> i love it i love it i knew that's it came from her and I, was, I i knew it yes exactly so the last question for you really is um we've talked a bit about the esports live facility trend can you name just one or two trends that that are interesting things in esports that you're watching right now that might be outside of the norm of of teams and tournaments yeah i think um i think really for for in terms of a trend that we're looking at i think something to me that's really exciting um and i alluded to this earlier um, is kind of this concept of taking esports in their current form, which I think, as I mentioned earlier, were built to kind of replicate traditional sports just because they were familiar to people. Uh, I think that a trend that I'd like to see more of it, and I think is taking place, is games really being developed uh, in a, in a way that the spectator is is not first, but 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 a close second to the the experience you get from actually playing and what i mean by that is taking the you know the spectator modes that we have now that are you know being implemented more and more into games and taking it to the next level where you can imagine instead of sitting at the fortnite world cup in the stands you could imagine that you know you are in the game uh, and you know you're you're not seen by the actual players, but you have the ability to move around and, and and act like you are in the game. And I don't know what needs to be done from a server standpoint, but I think there's a lot to be done from a a, a spectator stand, standpoint. But taking advantage of the fact that this is a digitally native medium, I think that's something mm. that that's really interesting. It's probably we're probably a little bit um, early there, but the the second trend I think that that. A lot of people kind of, uh, you know, look at as kind of second second tier in the world of esports is the concept of mobile. Um, you know, in in the states, we have a really high console penetration rate. Even people who aren't really considering themselves gamers owned growing up a PlayStation or an Xbox. When you look at other parts of the world, whether it's India or Latin America, we have such a powerful development in the terms of the smartphone and what it's done to grow the user base of gamers worldwide. And I have no idea how, you know, unless you're talking about a turn-based game like Hearthstone or something like that, I don't have no idea how these guys are so good on mobile playing PUBG or whatever else it is. Um, mm. But I think that is a huge trend that's that's not going anywhere um, that's that's really going to kind of take the industry in, in a lot of parts of the world to, to the next level and allow for... for you know, people to, to compete. And and one last one that I, I know you asked for two trends. I think the biggest mm. one is probably the biggest one. And I think 
I think Fortnite and Epic would probably attribute a great portion of their success to this, besides the fact that they've done a tremendous job putting out new content, is the standard for games to be cross-console. I think mm. that that, you know, we, we have esports now that are played exclusively on PC or like Call of Duty where you have console. I think that mm-hmm. w- with, and this is maybe more broader for gaming than it is esports, but I think that the development of the technology for more and more games to be cross-console, it's just going to allow for so many more people to play with play with whether it's with friends or or even competitively mm. yeah no all yeah all very solid examples fantastic so mate if someone would like to follow you or your company online where can they do so yeah so i'm not i'm not a linkedin girl girl like you are probably better to follow <laughs> probably better to follow uh my twitter at maybe bullish kind of play on the markets or uh you can follow our company account at round hill Fantastic, mate. Thanks so much for joining us today. And uh, I learn a lot out of this one and hopefully some other people did as well. The public markets is something that is very interesting to me as, I guess, a quote-unquote industry analyst and I think should be something that so many more esports people pay a lot more attention to as we look to grow the industry from, you know, $1 billion to $100 billion in the future. Yep, this is awesome. Thanks so much for having me on. Thanks, mate. Thank you for coming on and thank you to listening to the Big Esports Podcast. This has been episode number 53 with Will. If you'd like to learn about anything we talked about today, read the show notes and get in touch. You can head to bigesports.gg forward slash 52, the number 52 for the show notes, links and everything else. Thanks for listening. Once again, we will be doing a whole bunch of podcasts. Thanks to LinkedIn, we've booked in six or seven for me to record over the next two weeks. And one of those is a senior member of Facebook so I cannot wait to have him on board and to announce who it is. Thanks for listening and bye for now. Thanks for tuning into our podcast today. For show notes, relevant links and upcoming projects, you can check us out online at bigesports.gg or follow us on our social medias at bigesports underscore gg. Today's podcast and all of season one and season two has been brought to you by our sponsor, PLE Computers.